0: For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando Making Disciples for the Glory of God. Right. Title of our sermon this morning. Sympathy, unity, humility. Straightforward title. Romans chapter 12. Uh, in particular here, uh, we're going to be looking at verse, verses 15 and 16. In our study of Paul's letter now to the church at Rome... Paul has been exhorting us to a a gospel-informed love. That's what this is. Paul has been exhorting us to a gospel-informed love. In consideration of the mercies of God that he has lavishly poured out on us through the gospel of his own son, we are then exhorted as the people of God to present ourselves a living sacrifice to him which is our reasonable or rational service of worship. It's what is reasonably expected in response to the mercies of God that have been poured out on us. In consideration of our union with Jesus Christ as his body, we are called to serve one another faithfully upon a sober assessment of the gifts that he has given us. And we must love one another, brothers and sisters, without hypocrisy. We're to love one another with a sincere love that is fervently and affectionately demonstrated. We fervently and affectionately demonstrate toward one another a love that in light of the gospel even extends to those who would not ordinarily be objects of our love in a natural sense, but it extends even to those who hate us and persecute us. That is the character and the quality of the love that the Lord has shown to us in the gospel, demonstrating his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we must pray, brothers and sisters, diligently, strive diligently that the Lord would cause us to love one another as he has loved us, would cause us to abound in this grace. Now we, while that that love is founded upon the exalted theology that we've considered in chapters 1 through 11 of this letter, Paul's instruction in this chapter is very intimately and personally applicable or practical after an exposition of that exalted theology chapters one through 11 this is how Paul then begins to apply that theology in the life of the Christian in the practical experience of the church if you think about that with me for a moment terrific exalted wonderful theology chapters one through 11 profound Profound theology, chapter 1 through 11, and then where the Apostle Paul begins to apply all of that amazing, terrific theology is in this area of love for one another in his body. It's on this subject of love. The entire consecration of ourselves to God, verses 1 and 2, and the entire commitment of ourselves to one another in love, verses 3 through 21. That's an application of the first and second table of the law. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Paul is doing here. He's applying that exalted theology. He's applying the law. Flip the page and look at chapter 13. Chapter 13. And look at verse 8. Paul says, "Owe no one anything except to love one another because he who loves another has fulfilled the law. If that's a genuine, sincere love, that love fulfills the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all the commandments are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So having been redeemed through the gospel, the law no longer condemns us. The law becomes a rule of life. The law teaches us how we are to live and love as those who have been redeemed through the gospel. All of that so that the righteous requirements of God's law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but rather walk according to the spirit. It's so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, this is where Paul begins his application of the gospel. He begins where the law begins. He begins with love. Paul is a very good example of the love that we're being called to in this chapter. If you remember Paul's testimony, his experience through, this, through the pages of scripture, Paul has entirely consecrated himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, entirely. And he has consecrated himself entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ in love for and in service to the Lord's church, loving one another. Love for God, love for neighbor. Now think with me for a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this, he had been repeatedly beaten, repeatedly whipped, imprisoned, assaulted, once stoned, left for dead. He was in near constant peril for his life. Everywhere he went in every city, Paul says, the spirit testified that chains and tribulations awaited him. And yet what was Paul's deep concern, right? Paul said the deep concern that troubled his heart on a daily basis was the health and well being of the Lord's church. In that context, for all of that, the thing that weighed heavily on Paul's heart was his deep concern for the Lord's church. The Apostle Paul, who has given his life for the health and well-being of the church from his own practical experience, deeply concerned, knowing the struggles, knowing the difficulties, knowing the adversity that the church faces. Where does Paul begin in his instruction to the church in Romans chapter 12? He begins with love his exhortation to the people of God to love one another with a sincere love. Love one another with a love that is free from the stain and stench of hypocrisy. We've got to love one another. You understand the point, right? The connection. Paul's deep concern is the health and well-being of the church. And where does he begin when he is thinking about the health and well-being of the church? He begins with love. He begins with love. Our love for one another. Difficulty in the church. Trials and tribulations, church splits are nothing new. They are nothing new. They are historic. They are ancient. They are consistent. They're pervasive. The tribulations that we face are historic. They are pervasive. They are consistent. If we are going to endure as a church, if you and I, Or going to persevere together in the way that the Lord has called us to persevere, to endure in the way that the Lord has called us to endure. Then we have to learn to love one another in this way. We have to grow in this grace. We have to abound in this grace. And as the Lord adds to our number, as the Lord certainly does, as the Lord grows his church, we have to maintain and endeavor after Um, laboring with one another to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. Now that doesn't grow out of the dirt. That doesn't materialize out of thin air. We don't have that growing on a tree in the backyard. We have to labor and strive and depend upon God in prayer to see to it that we're obeying the Lord here in this. We must learn to love one another in this way. Paul's concern in our text has been to promote And to cultivate a sincere love in and from the church. That's what we need. We need this. Now, as Paul in chapter 12 begins to distinguish the character and the quality of that love, which both fulfills the law and adorns the gospel as he begins to distinguish the character and quality of that love from the love that is in the world or from the love that is in professing Christendom, which knows nothing of this kind of love, as Paul begins to distinguish it, as he begins to distinguish that genuine love from the perverted form of love that is native to this fallen world or native to our fallen flesh, he has in mind a sincere love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy. It is a love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy. It's moral, verse 9. In other words, it fulfills the law, abhorring that which is evil and clinging to that which is good. It's familial. In verse 10, it is the warmth of a brotherly, a familial affection, right? It's active. Verses one through, or 11 through 13. And it extends even to those we might otherwise reject as objects of our love. It extends to our enemies, verse 14. So then, so then. Sincere love is not a feeling. Though warmth and delight are an expected component of a sincere love, as you focus your heart upon another person, is a focus of the heart upon that person with warmth and delight. Sincere love is not first and foremost a feeling. Remember our definition, right? When we considered uh, endeavoring after a definition here of love, love is the heart focused upon another person with affectionate warmth and delight, such that. That sincere love thinks, speaks, and acts with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to that person's biblical and spiritual good, right? Warmth and delight is certainly a component of a sincere love, but love is not a feeling. Sincere love is not passive. Sincere love is not passive. We are to be determined. We are to, de- we are to determine To love one another in this way, we are to commit ourselves to both loving and being loved in the ways that we've discussed, the ways that Paul has instructed us. We are to think, speak, and act with enduring commitment and self-sacrificing devotion to one another's good. A sincere love is not superficial. It's not a feeling. It's not passive. It's not superficial. It assumes a level of intimacy. It assumes a level of investment. It assumes a level of transparency. It assumes a level of mutual investment, mutual association, mutual diligence, mutual effort. It assumes the characteristic of what what we might connect to a family. But this kind of love transcends even that love that is exhibited in an earthly family. You've heard it said that blood is thicker than water Well, this is thicker than blood. And it's because this kind of love transcends even that native love that is natural, quote unquote, to an earthly family. That's because verse five, we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's why we use brothers and sisters, terms like brother and sister to address one another. That's not an empty statement, There's much, there's much spiritually, there's much mystically here that binds us together in a way that mere flesh, that mere blood does not. So our love for one another should manifest those spiritual and mystical bonds. We don't even fully understand those, but that is what is instructed. That's what's revealed to us in the word of God. That's the way that the family, the body of Christ is to conduct itself. It has to, Right? If, like Paul, you have a deep concern for the Lord's church, then it has to. This is where we start, loving one another in this way. Love is not primarily a feeling. Love is not passive. Love is not superficial. Now, in the verses that follow, Paul is now going to summarize his thoughts, the thoughts that we've considered with Paul, beginning really in verse 3. And he's going to summarize those thoughts before we move on to chapter 13. In our text this morning from verses 15 and 16, Paul will summarize his exhortation for us to love one another. And then in verses 17 through 21, he's going to explain further that exhortation for us to love our enemies from verse 14. So this morning, we're going to take up Paul's summary in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. With verses 15 and 16, Paul essentially condenses the instruction that has gone before concerning our love for one another in the Lord's church. He's, He's giving us a summary before we move on to other subjects. With Paul... We can summarize sincere love under three headings from verses 15 and 16. Sympathy, unity, and humility. Three headings, sympathy, unity, humility. Sympathy in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Unity in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. And humility in verse 16, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Sympathy, unity, humility. Now Paul's concern again, remember, is promoting or cultivating love a love in the church that is without hypocrisy, a sincere love characterized by sympathy, unity, and humility. Consider with me first sympathy, Christian sympathy in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now with this statement, verse 15, Paul has in mind here, an entire spectrum of human emotion from rejoicing to weeping from one end of the spectrum to the other. Now the point of Paul's exhortation is Christian sympathy from a heart of sincere love for our brother or sister. That's what Paul has in mind. Christian sympathy from a sincere heart of love for one another. That first impression, this might sound simple or even easy It might sound, quote unquote, natural to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. But it's not as simple as it might sound. It's not as natural as it might seem. And the reason for this is that this exhortation from Paul in verse 15 requires, it requires investment. It requires commitment. A sincere love will rejoice with those who rejoice Because sincere love will enter into the occasion of that joy with another person as if it were an occasion for your own. A sincere love will enter into the joy of another person as it is an occasion for your own joy. A sincere love will enter into the pain, the sorrow of another person such that that occasion of their own pain is an occasion for your own for your own pain sincere love assumes a mutual sympathy and that mutual sympathy is effected by our commitment to love one another it's effected by our investment in one another's lives it's effected by a sincere love and we saw that same principle at work in verse 13 we're invested in the lives of our brothers. So we have then koinoneo, we have fellowship in their need. We're invested in one another's lives such that when our brother's in need, we share that need. We share that burden. That's a very practical, a very tangible way of illustrating, if you will, that investment in one another's lives. My brother's need is my need, right? Your need is my need. My need is your need. We share fellowship in ministering to one another's needs. That's what The church is to do. And again, this is the same principle then discussed in verse 15, that rejoicing with those who rejoice is not a superficial, I'm happy, you're happy. No, it's entering into the occasion of their joy as if it were an occasion of your own. It's entering into their sorrow, into their pain, as if it were an occasion for your own. It's sharing fellowship in their joy, sharing true Christian fellowship in their sorrow. Here, we have committed ourselves to love one another with a sincere love. And so, we then, having committed ourselves to a sincere love, are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're to share life together. Now, that sharing of life together is not one-sided. It's not one-sided. From one side, you have to labor to be transparent you have to labor to allow access, to endeavor to allow access, to welcome access, to entreat access. By the way that you respond to others coming to you, you need to respond in a way that entreats and endears access to your life. You have to labor to be transparent. From one side, you have to be transparent. From the other side, you have to be invested. You have to be committed. You have to go. You have to be one who is laboring to gain access. <laughs> access. From one side, transparent. From the other side, invested, committed. You yourself must be both transparent and committed. Transparent and invested. Such that we experience life together. And we experience life together across a broad range of human experience. Across a broad range of church experience that marks the Christian life from joy to sorrow. A broad range of experience that goes from rejoicing to weeping. And we are to be there together. The family, we we are to experience that in a way that the family is there with you. Both you being transparent, you being committed, you being invested. Rejoicing when you rejoice, weeping when you weep. Rejoicing with others when they rejoice, weeping with others when they weep. The natural response, brothers and sisters, is to keep one another boxed out. That's the natural response. How are you doing? Fine. <laughs> right? And listen, I'm not... Um, there's a time and a place for common courtesy. right? There's a time and a place for traditional greetings. We all understand that. that's not what I'm talking about. But a sincere love requires transparency. A sincere love requires investment. Sometimes all you want to say is fine. And frankly, sometimes... All the person asking wants to hear is fine. (sighs) But a sincere love, a genuine love, a love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy requires transparency and it requires commitment. The kind of love that Paul is calling us to involves a greater commitment on both sides of that equation. It is a love that gives access and it's the kind of love that enters in. Do you see? It gives access and it enters in. In other words, verse 15, it, is a, it involves a mutual sympathy, a Christian sympathy, a loving, sincere sympathy. Our natural inclination is to be selfish and prideful. So in consideration of another's joy, we often respond with envy or we often respond with disinterest, Lloyd Jones, it is the very exceptional man or woman who genuinely rejoices at another's success. It is the very exceptional man or woman, the very exceptional Christian man or woman, godly man or woman, who genuinely rejoices at another's success. It's not natural to enter in in that way. You might think that it's easier to weep with those who weep. It might be easier for me. <laughs> But often it's, it's easier in the worst forms of that natural expression. It's often easier because we're not the ones being brought low. But Paul isn't speaking here merely of an outward response. Paul is speaking in the use of those terms. Paul is speaking of an inward disposition. Their joy is our joy. Their pain is our pain that requires an inward disposition. The the, the superficial, worldly approach to this, uh, it's often easy to express joy at another's joy, but far more difficult to find the inward heart disposition that rejoices with their joy. It's sometimes simple or seems easy to weep with those who weep, but far more problematic when you consider the heart or the disposition of the heart with the one who is weeping. We cannot be superficial with one another. When sin and self get in the way, as they often do, you see very grievous error on both sides of this equation. Grievous error. Think with me about the the parable of the two sons. Thought about this as an example of this very point. In the parable of the two sons, it's the sin of the elder brother that prevents him from entering into the joy of his father. Remember the story, right? The account. It's the sin of the elder brother that prevents him from sharing in the joy of his father, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it's the sin of the elder brother that caused him to gloat over the grief that befell his brother. He's selfish and he's prideful. That's the elder brother. He couldn't rejoice with the one rejoicing and he couldn't weep with the one who's weeping. And that is the natural response. That's the natural inclination of our fallen flesh. And it's manifest, that kind of heartless. A loveless hypocrisy is a manifest in the absence of love. In the absence of love, you'll see that response, the response of the elder brother. We don't conduct ourselves this way in polite company. in polite company. you don't find people just walking around generally uh, acting this way in polite company. We've been taught not to behave that well that way. Certainly, certainly, you don't find. Professing Christians conducting themselves that way Uh, in the Lord's church. The professing Christian knows better often than to conduct himself or herself in that way. Their conscience is grieved by the, the hypocrisy of it. But if there's ever a reason to drop the facade and to drop that fake and superficial love, if there's ever a reason You'll witness the meanness and the spite of the elder brother in their thoughts, words, and actions. You'll witness the meanness, the spite of the elder brother. He will stand opposed to any good, and he will rejoice at your calamity. He will stand opposed to your well-being, and he will gloat in your demise. He will gloat in your calamity. We've seen it, have we not? It may sound easy to rejoice with those who rejoice. It may sound easy to weep with those who weep. But what tends to be easy is the superficial counterfeiting of that sentiment. The professing church today is characterized by the counterfeit. And brothers and sisters, that that, that difficulty arose simultaneously with the rise of the megachurch. Because so we can all go to church and we can be anonymous from one another. And we can you know, sit in our own little corner and do our own thing. And we can leave as soon as the, the, the service is over and go back to our own lives. And that's not the church. That's not how the church is to conduct, conduct itself. We are to love one another in such a way that we rejoice with those who rejoice, that we weep with those who weep. The only way that we do that with a sincere love that is free from the stain of hypocrisy is by entering in to that rejoicing as though it were an occasion for our own, entering in to the pain of that sorrow and grief as if it were an occasion for our own. And that requires transparency. That requires commitment. That requires investment. It requires diligence. It requires the spirit of God to do a work in your heart and in my heart so that that is sincere among us. And so that the first time that hypocritical love ever rears its head in our church. We're able to biblically and faithfully, lovingly do something about that. That we are able to endeavor, labor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It requires diligent effort. Amen. Requires that we depend entirely on God's spirit. What is impossible for man is possible with God. And this is a fruit of God's spirit. We must, you must come alongside one another You must come alongside me and I must come alongside you. We must come alongside one another on behalf of one another. We must put off like a filthy rag, that fake superficiality. Don't let it be named among us. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members are honored with it. All the members rejoice with it. it's impossible apart from a work of God's spirit. But I would also say that it's impossible if you're not rooted and grounded and motivated by how you have been loved through the gospel. If you've not embraced that through faith, you don't have an understanding of that through faith, this is going to be impossible. The elder brother acted like the elder brother precisely because he thought he was entitled to everything that the father had given him. He believed he was entitled to those things. He forgot that he wasn't entitled to anything. And you can see in that, can't you, the connection between this exhortation of Paul to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep and his exhortation to not think too highly of yourselves, right? You can, you can see the connection between sympathy and humility. There's a connection between all three in this text, all three exhortations. Paul exhibited this kind of love in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. When Paul refers to the deep concern that he has for all the churches, he says, listen, who is weak and I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. In other words, when, when someone was weak, Paul entered into their weakness as an occasion of his own. When they were wrong, when they stumbled, Paul took it Personally, as an occasion for his own indignation. Paul is making the same statement here. Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. First then in our text, there is an exhortation here in verse 15 to mutual Christian sympathy. This is the nature of sincere and brotherly love. A love that is without hypocrisy. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Second, Paul then summarizes his instruction pertaining to sincere Christian love by exhorting us to unity. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. We are one body. Paul says in verse 5, we are members of one another. We have fellowship one with another in our joys and in our trials. So, knowing that, we must be then of the same mind toward one one another. That's different from saying be of the same mind with one another. Paul's going to address that in chapter 15. The Bible certainly commands that to be of the same mind with one another. Here, he doesn't use that language. Be of the same mind toward one another. And what Paul is referring to with that exhortation, he's referring to the way that he is instructed to for us to love one another. He's referring to the instruction for us to love. And he's saying that we should all think of one another in these ways. It's an exhortation to love in unity. This kind of love isn't the only foundation upon which our unity is to be built. True Christian unity is a, a manifold complex of unified acts, right? But true Christian unity is impossible apart from this kind of love. It's impossible. We must be of the same mind toward one another. If we're not all committed to loving one another in this way, then we really don't have unity at all. To the degree that we we are not committed and invested and laboring to love one another in this way is to the degree that our unity is undermined. Or, we're simply going to maintain the superficial sham. That's what uh, a lot of professing church does today. It's just a superficial sham. Maybe you've experienced that in your own family, right? The Lord converted you. You don't have a lot in common. And so now there's just this sort of layer of superficiality that whitewashes the whole relationship. It's not to be that way in the Lord's church. We'll either maintain or be okay with or tolerate the superficial sham or something will ignite the inevitable conflict and it'll blow the whole thing up. <laughs> the whole thing will fall apart. In the absence of this kind of love for one another, that's what, that's what happens. Ephesians chapter four, verse one. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with, here, here, right? And again, this connection between sympathy, unity, and humility with all lowliness and with gentleness and with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Sympathy. Endeavoring, laboring, working, striving to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace Because, unity, verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. That command, verse two, is given because of conflict. Why is this kind of love, why does this kind of love require lowliness and gentleness and long suffering, bearing with one another? It requires that because there is inevitably going to be conflict. We're inevitably going to disagree. We're going to have difficulty. There's going to be adversity. So it requires lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. This is given in a context. It's given in the context of the church where we are many, but we are members together of one another. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. We are to be of the same mind toward one another. Paul is not speaking of uniformity. Paul is speaking of unity. We've got to have this kind of love for one another. We must be committed to this kind of love for one another. We're instructed to love with a sincere love. And to that, brothers and sisters, that sincere love is to be very carefully, very diligently maintained as a mutual commitment. And that requires diligence. That requires vigilance. With all lowliness, with all gentleness, with all long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. It requires reciprocal care and effort. You must not entertain. You must not abide or allow any discordant compromise in your thoughts regarding one another. Don't allow it to creep in because it will. (laughs) you cannot entertain or abide or allow any discordant compromise in the way that you think about me or in the way that you think about Pastor Dale or in the way that you think about other brothers around here who tend to do a lot of talking. We cannot allow, entertain, or abide any discordant compromise in the way that we think about you. You cannot, if you allow cracks in the pavement, noxious weeds are going to go, grow through it. <laughs> We're in Florida, we know that full well. We, you can't even see a crack before a weed is coming through there, right? If you allow cracks in this pavement, noxious weeds are all that is going, you're not going to see a blossoming flower through that crack. Noxious weeds are going to be the only thing that grows through there. We've learned to spot that, haven't we? I pray we have. I pray we've learned to to spot that, to discern that. When the mutual love that Paul enjoins here in the text, when that mutual love breaks down, the, the failure to love, as we are being called to love here, is going to be made manifest. And it is often first manifest in complaining It's often first manifest in criticism. Criticism, tell me if it's not true. If you're married, maybe you've seen this in your own marriage or in your relationships with another person, in in a friendship with another person. Often that first failure to love in the way that Paul enjoins here in Romans chapter 12, failure to love in this way is often first manifest in criticism or in complaining. Criticism and complaining will lead to conflict. Conflict unresolved will lead to contempt. Contempt unresolved will lead to collapse. It's a pattern that will kill a relationship. It's a pattern that will kill a marriage. It's a pattern that will kill a church. Concerning sincere and brotherly love for one another, Paul exhorts, be of the same mind toward one another. I would submit to you that it's that Mutual deference, that mutual love for one another, having the same mind in love toward one another that largely then supports having the same mind with one another. Having the same mind with one another is impossible if you do not have the same mind toward one another. Latter is impossible without the former. Our unity as a church in all of its manifold splendor is dependent upon this kind of mutuality in our love. And the New Testament everywhere exhorts to this kind of unity. Flip over to Philippians chapter one with me. Philippians chapter one. Hang in there with me. Philippians chapter one. Paul teaches the Philippians here for their progress in their joy in the faith. He says this, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now that exhortation is in a context, in a context verse 28 and not in any way terrified or intimidated by your adversaries. That's the context They need to love one another in this way, standing fast in this way, because they face fearsome adversaries. And that fact, they're not terrified or intimidated by their adversaries. Verse 28 is to them. That faith is to them. Those who don't have it, It's to them a proof of perdition, but to you, it's a proof of your salvation and that from God. Because, verse 29, it has been granted to you. It has been given as a gift of God's grace on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Like Paul, like our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, chapter two, verse one, if there's any consolation in Christ, if you have any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the spirit, if any of this is true of you, if there's any affection, if there's any mercy, if there's any mutual love, verse two, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. All of that toward one another and with one another, do you see? Remember, Paul Paul is exhorting us to sympathy, unity, and humility in Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. And you can see how these three concepts are intimately connected. He connects them all the time in scripture. He connects them again by referring to humility in verse three, verse three, on the heels of this, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness, I would submit to you, it is a breakdown. It is a breakdown of your own pride our own lack of humility that causes the kind of conflict that Paul is attempting to teach us to avoid here in these texts. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. But, verse 3, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. A sincere love, a mutual sympathy toward the same mind toward one another. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul isn't speaking here of uniformity. Paul is speaking of unity. And that kind of unity begins, begins with being of the same mind toward one another. The mutual love, that mutual love for one another provides the foundation upon which unity in all of its manifold manifestations may be maintained. We've seen what happens when that love breaks down. There's not going to be uniformity in your marriage. Is that a surprise to anybody who's married? (laughs) There's not going to be, I just want to break it to you. Sorry, there's not going to be uniformity in your marriage. But when there is a sincere love in that relationship, there will be a unity of mind. There will be a unity of purpose. There will be a unity of intention, a unity of words, a unity of aspirations, a unity of ambitions, a unity of purpose. There will be unity in the words that come out of your mouth. There will be a unity of thought. There will be a unity of desire. There will be a unity of mission. If there is sincere love in that relationship, there won't be uniformity, but there will be unity. You know what I'm saying? The same brothers and sisters, is true in the church. The same is true in the church. Doctrine alone is an insufficient basis for the kind of unity that Paul enjoins. You have to apply doctrine to the way that you think about, speak about, act toward, love one another. We must endeavor to love one another without hypocrisy and maintain the same mind toward one another. So Paul exhorts us to a mutual sympathy. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. He exhorts us to a mutual love or regard for one another in verse 16, to unity in our love, be of the same mind toward one another. And finally, he exhorts us to humility in verse 16. In closing, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Do not allow your mind to be preoccupied with thoughts of your own unwarranted importance. Do not allow your thinking to be disposed toward prideful or arrogant thoughts. Do not think of yourself, verse three, more highly than you ought to think. But rather, rather, find yourself sunapago in symphony with or in accord with humble people doing humble things, right? Humble people just doing the Lord's work, striving to do the Lord's work, the best way they know how. Do not, literally, do not be wise in or to yourself. Do not be wise in your own thoughts. Do not be wise in your own conceits. We live in community. You are not an island to yourself. The conceited or opinionated person is intractable. The conceited or opinionated person is impervious to any thought or any judgment but his own. And if you don't agree with him, you're wrong. We live in community. James says that godly wisdom is meek. That godly wisdom is easy to entreat. But if there is self-seeking in your heart, that so-called wisdom is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom is from above. That wisdom which is from above is first pure. It's peaceable. That's how you tell that it comes from above and not from below. <laughs> that wisdom is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy, full it is the fruit of righteousness. Is sown that fruit of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Philippians 2:3 again connected this thought to sincere love let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. A sincere love for one another requires a mutual humility. It requires a mutual humility. And when that mutual love, when that deference, when that mutual humility breaks down, the relationship is imperiled. It is imperiled. Why? Why? Because the sincere love that Paul knows is necessary to the health and well-being of the Lord's church is impossible when you're focused on yourself. In the case of a hypocritical counterfeit, in in the case of one walking around with a sham, this counterfeit kind of love, right? All is well, all is well as long as your perceived expectations are being met. And that can go on for a long period of time. All is well, as long as your perceived expectations for that group, that relationship, those people, that church, that marriage, as long as your perceived expectations are being met, It's easy in that circumstance to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's easy in that circumstance to weep with those who weep. As long as there's some interest-serving, self-serving point to the relationship. As long as that exists, then you can keep up the superficial sham. You can keep up the counterfeit. But how quickly, how quickly this kind of selfish and prideful counterfeit is exposed for what it is when the relationship no longer serves that purpose for you. Why is it that so many marriages end in divorce? because that relationship no longer serves the purpose for which that relationship was founded. Or or it, it dissolves and degrades when abandoning the love that you should have better serves your own pride. We're called to love one another and expect nothing in return. That's the way that Christians are called to love one another. We're called to love one another and expect nothing in return. Jesus said, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, then what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back, but love your enemies, do good and lend hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your father also is merciful. It's a tall order, isn't it? Lord, help us. Paul has exhorted us to sympathy, unity, and humility and a sincere love for one another, a love that is without hypocrisy. To what end? To what end? Paul's deep concern for the church. Our own deep concern for the church. This is an absolute necessity for ourselves. If we are going to endure and persevere to the end, it's an absolute necessity for you and I to learn to love in this way and to abound in this grace. Absolute necessity. And it's an absolute necessity if we are going to seek to adorn the gospel in the way that we live life together as the Lord's church. Often the New Testament refers to the way that we love one another as a witness to this lost world. It's only a witness to this lost world for Jesus Christ as much as we abide by what Paul enjoins in the text. Don't let it be a witness of the infiltration of this world's so-called thoughts of love into the church. We need to love one another sincerely as we've been called to love here. And brothers and sisters, to what end? to the end that we love one another and love others as we have been loved by the Lord Jesus Christ, as we have been loved by God through the gospel. We should desire from the heart to manifest that kind of love toward others because that is the way that we have been loved, amen? Pray with me. Father in in heaven, help us, help us. Cause us to understand this grace. Uh, Cause us to abound in this grace. Um, Cause us by your spirit to walk in it, to cultivate it, to promote it, not to forget the kind instruction of your word here, but to labor with one another, to love one another in this way, to be invested, to be transparent, to, to be of the same mind toward one another, to be of the same mind with one another, to adorn the gospel, to reflect on the way that we've been loved, Help us, Lord, to walk according to the Spirit and walking according to the Spirit to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Lord. We need you in this. It is impossible for us. We know that those things which are impossible for us are possible with our God. We praise you and thank you for your help and for your mercy and grace toward us, having given up your own son for us. We know, we know. You will continue the work which you began in us. Freely give us these things too. We know that when we ask without doubting, you give liberally without reproach. So we ask, Lord, in faith, the expectation of faith. You are gracious and merciful to your own, to conform us to the image of your Son. Be great. So we pray that you would do that for your own glory.